When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And a blessed Advent to you, Ashley. Yes. We have an exciting show today for a couple of reasons. Yeah, banner show. I'm really, really <laughs> psyched. Um, some some great content coming and some, some really exciting announcements. Um, I guess we can just get to that without any further ado. Yeah. Uh, really excited to announce to you guys that we are going to Italy next year. And we want you to come with us. Uh, that's right. Yeah. So we're working with Select International Tours. We're, we're, they've helped us organize an amazing itinerary that's going to Italy next September, 17th through 28th, 2022. Put it on your calendar. And like the show, this pilgrimage will be often over drinks. That's right. So, you know, we're, we're, we're hitting up a winery in Tuscany. Um, we're, we're going to have lots of, lots of Roman wine. We're going all over, all over Italy. We're doing Rome, uh, Assisi. Tuscany, Siena, Florence, Venice. We're, we're we're hitting a lot of cool stuff. We're gonna we're gonna see we're gonna say hi to Pope Francis as long as he's he's chilling in the Vatican <laughs> at that time. Um, other exciting things is that Father Eric Sundrup, who you know as the uh, spiritual director for this show, he, who meets with Ashley and I every week, um, has also been on the show. He's going to be with us, so we'll definitely have some some priest faculties on, on the team. Um, but Eric's also a good drinking buddy too. Yeah, <laughs> so very exciting. We will link to the um, website in the show notes where you can see the full itinerary, and we hope you consider joining us. Yeah, don't miss out on this. It's it's going to be a ton of fun. We've got limited spots available, and again, save the date September seventeenth through twenty eighth, twenty twenty two. Uh, what what's going on this? This week, though, actually. this week we are talking to Roseanne Haggerty, who is an extremely impressive woman. She's the president and chief executive officer of Community Solutions, which is a really in- innovative approach to ending homelessness in our communities. Yeah, I've definitely felt like homelessness can be this just very overwhelming problem that I don't. I, I feel very helpless, um, especially you know living in New York. Uh, it, the problem is just kind of. All over the place. Roseanne and Community Solutions are proving that homelessness is not inevitable, right? We can solve this. And they're doing some really cool things and and, and leading the way on a, an important approach to this ministry. Yes. So stick around for our conversation with Roseanne. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. Zach, what was that dish that you made on Friday night? Boeuf bourguignon. That's the one. I'm not going to be able to say it. But... <laughs> I, I did help chop the onions for it, um, but I, it was kind of a mess. I was crying by the end of it and not just because of the fumes. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. But I, I, I'm excited to talk to you about our uh, course from Wondrium this week uh, yes. that, you, that you've selected for us because I think it's going to help you with your onion chopping problem. Yes, it will. So I was, I was searching through the app and there's a series called Learn in a Weekend. So they give these short videos that give you things that, you know, maybe you think you know how to do it, but you've never really learned. And so one of the courses is how to chop an onion. 
<laughs> yeah, and there's all kinds of cool stuff on there, like how to do how, how to learn how to do a card trick in a weekend. It's how to build a campfire. So it's it's really manageable, just like easy things. And that's what I love about Wondrium is they've got these great, great series that um, feed your mind, feed your brain, but are also really entertaining. Um, and, and you're coming away with some new life skills. And Wondrium makes a wonderful gift. It's actually, I have a couple of family members who put it on their Christmas list this year. So if you would like to have the gift of endless learning, you can go to wondrium.com slash Jesuitical for a special free trial. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. I would never eat an onion, even if I did learn how to chop them like directly without cooking it first. Um, but I would eat uh, pretzels and licorice, which is uh, why I'm so excited to tell our listeners about pretzels.com and licorice.com. These websites were made for pretzel fanatics and licorice lovers like us. And it's pretty easy to remember. That's pretzels.com and licorice.com. We got the uh, chipotle cheddar pretzels sent to us here uh we ordered some of those and they are they're delicious right they've yeah, got they're that. basically gone oh <laughs> uh, yeah they're all gone yeah we we, we moved through them we, um we made the mistake of sharing with our colleagues and we also ordered some watermelon sour twist from licorice.com and i i, I love candy sour candy so much it was so good um and licorice.com has that flavor and 49 other premium gourmet licorice flavors from around the world and just like licorice.com pretzels.com has a ton of flavors too and it's really nice uh, packaging that it comes in too, right? So if you're looking for a Christmas gift, I know it might sound, um, oh, like I don't want to, I, I want to get some pretzels. But this is like really, they've invested a lot in both the flavor and the packaging. And if you're like me, I, I have too much stuff. I, I don't need any more stuff for Christmas. And so that's why I always love giving gifts that are consumable right? That you can eat and share with someone. And so we wanted to point you to pretzels.com and licorice.com today. And if you go right now, we've got an amazing deal for you. You can get 20% off your order for Christmas. And that's only if you use our code Jesuitical. So go to pretzels.com and licorice.com to get 20% off today using our code Jesuitical. And now we've got Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So our first story comes out of San Francisco, where this week Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione um, appeared on the San Francisco Chronicles It's All Political podcast. This is last week. Um, and he revealed that uh, they had a long discussion, but at the end he revealed that he has not been vaccinated against COVID-19. Yes, he said that he's not an anti-vaxxer, but that he talked to his primary care physician who told him, quote, that it's probably not necessary for me to be vaccinated because the archbishop said he has a, a very strong immune system. He said that during the pandemic, he, he knows for a fact that he's been in a confined space with someone who he later knew was positive for COVID and he didn't get the virus. So he took that as evidence that he is just naturally immune. He also, he did say that his doctor didn't dissuade him from getting the vaccine and continued to say, and this is incorrect, that the available shots are, quote, not really vaccines since they only provide temporary protection and that asymptomatic people can't spread the virus. And so wanted to talk about this today. And I, I was, I've been thinking a lot about how to say this because it's, it's really frustrating to hear this kind of from, from anyone, but particularly from, from a church leader, someone who is by default ministering to vulnerable populations all the time because old people go to mass and are in need of ministry. And also is someone that people look to as an example and for guidance. And to that point, he's, he's, he's 
it tried to encourage people to get vaccines. You know, he's got, he's appeared in videos, you know, promoting Pope Francis's message about vaccines being an act of love. But all that's super undercut by his own personal experience and the and the, and the reasons that he's given yeah. for not getting it. Yeah, and it's just such a betrayal of the common good. Like vaccines, the, the they only work when it's like everyone's getting them. And and to say, you know, I think I'm safe, so I'm not going to get it. That that really does not hold up. No, it's not. It's not just a personal choice. That's yeah. not how vaccine programs work. And I've been thinking about you know our conversation with with Brother Guy earlier this year about you know following the science and what that means and just came to a point of real frustration and disappointment because we know that the only way out of this pandemic, or not the only way, but there there are other options that are way worse, but uh, is to vaccinate everybody as fast as possible. And by the archbishop kind of spreading some of these things about what he what he believes about what the vaccines are or not. Um, he's severely undercutting his own stated goal of encouraging people to get vaccinated. And so um, I guess just as 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 young Catholics, if if you're listening, Archbishop Cordelione, please, please, please get vaccinated, at least reconsider it. Your, your witness could be huge, especially if you decide to change your mind. Yeah. And like you said, it's not only limiting his his witness, it's it's putting in jeopardy his his ministry. You know, like priests are working uh, with vulnerable people. They're working with kids who ca maybe can't get the vaccine yet um, with, you know, people in prisons or nursing homes. And by not getting vaccinated, he's either one, maybe not able to access those places or two, if he is going, he's putting these people at risk. So it is. Yeah. Like I said, it's it's kind of disappointing. And we we hope the archbishop changes his mind. What's our next story, Ashley? So now we are moving over to Cincinnati, where on Sunday, the archbishop unveiled a restructuring plan that's pretty dramatic. The archdiocese currently has 208 parishes, and that is going to get cut down to 57, quote, families of parishes. Yes, this is called the Beacon of Light plan initiative that's coming out of this diocese. And it's uh, really responding to a reality that I think is familiar, at least to people that are in the Midwest or on the East Coast, of lots of half-empty parishes, uh, fewer priests, fewer people coming back to Mass. And we still got all these buildings and bills to pay, right? And so I I wanted to get your take on this because uh, I imagine we, we've seen some of this happening in other places. Pittsburgh comes to mind where they've, you know, closed down a lot of parishes. Uh, they've not really said they're closing parishes. It's it's more of a restructuring, which sounds like either corporate or church speak for maybe closing parishes. But what were, what were your thoughts on going from 208 parishes yeah. to 57 families of parishes? I want to preface this by saying I understand that it can be really painful when you are on the receiving end of one of these plans and the parish that you've loved and maybe got baptized in or married in and that, you know, is really central to your spiritual life is is closing down. That is hard. That said, this, you know, is not only something that needs to happen now, it's something that probably could have happened a few years ago. And this plan looks really sophisticated. Their website kind of takes takes you through the reasons for doing it. Like you said, priests are already stretched thin and they they say that, you know, in just the f next five years because of retirements and deaths, there are going to be 20 percent less priests to do work that's already too much for the existing priest. And that's leading them to put people into positions as pastors before they're ready. So it's not just that, you know, resources are stretched thin. It's that we're, we're, you know, kind of actively hurting evangelization by not rethinking how we're doing this. Yeah. And one of the reasons they gave is, you know, are we are we living out 
the gospel? Are we are we living out Jesus's mission that he um, asked us to do? Or are we just like maintaining the status quo? Are we just trying to go go on to get along, keep these keep these buildings open, keep these schools open, um, all the while you know people are falling away. I mean, there's just like, I've expressed frustration with the way parish life works typically in this country before. Um, I was on, we were on Glory Purposes podcast this week where I, I went maybe a little too hard on parishes, but there's nothing more like, I don't know, sad if you're like a, a young person and walking into a church for the first time and it being like half empty, everybody, everybody's six feet apart and not because they have to social distance. <laughs> right. And I, and I hope that we can move to a place where we're, you know, being willing to share resources and being willing to come together and, you know, become families, right? I, you and I both belong to a parish that's made up of two church buildings. Typically the way this has worked before is like, there's a priest that serves two parishes, but those parishes would never talk to each other. Right. And this new model where, you know, you you're actually going to like the same youth group or men's group or women's group or whatever ministry you've actually got some some intermingling i think is going to be a really positive step for the church in cincinnati and i'm happy to see it yeah now it also reminds me of our conversation with molly burhans uh about one knowing knowing what the church's resources and land holdings are and then using those to live and spread the gospel and so you know like you said, is a half-empty church better used for a mass where ten people go, or you know, as a you know shelter for people who need housing or something else? Yeah. Um, so I do think the people of Cincinnati should read some of the writing on the wall. It, 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 not all of these buildings are going to stay open, right? So a lot of these families of parishes are going to condense into one canonical parish, right? That that's even in the FAQs on the website for Beacons of Light. So if, if if you're in Cincinnati, if you're in a half empty parish somewhere, tell us what you think about what we should do as a church in the United States, because this problem is not going away anytime soon. So shoot us an email at jesuitical at americamedia.org or tweet us at Jesuitical Show. And now stick around for our conversation with Roseanne Haggerty. Joining us in studio is Roseanne Haggerty. Roseanne is the President and Chief Executive Officer of Community Solutions, a leader in developing innovative strategies to end homelessness and strengthen communities. Welcome to Jesuitical, Roseanne. Thank you for having me. I'm wondering if you could start by describing what, as you understand it, most most Americans view or understanding of homelessness is in the United States today. And then maybe sort of pick apart where, where that fits with reality and where it's a little more nuanced. Well, Zach, if you take anything away from this conversation, it should be that homelessness is solvable. And that's not what most people believe. I think we've been lulled into thinking that it's an intractable problem. Uh, but we now have ample evidence that communities can solve it. And we now, uh, our organization is working with 98 counties and county regions across the country, and more than half are measurably reducing homelessness, 14 have ended homelessness for one or more populations, veterans, the chronically homeless. And what I think had been really this stubborn problem all along is uh, failing to see this issue as a, a challenge of coordination, uh, not so much of, of, of not having enough programs or you know, people wanting to be homeless. Uh, what 
the communities we work with have done differently is like, treated it as a public health problem and just coordinated all the activities against the clear goal of eliminating homelessness. What do you think like the stereo or like, kind of what Zach was getting at is like when people think of a ho- like a homeless person, like what they are imagining and what the reality is of well, you that mentioned, population. You mentioned like people wanting to be homelessness. That's, a, I think, a pretty common yeah, that, idea. That, that's a common idea that people have chosen that lifestyle or that there's just not enough money to fix a problem or there's just not enough housing. Those are the, the typical you know, kind of places where people go and trying to make sense of the issue. But uh, – to give you sort of a, a, a reorientation, and this should make you feel really hopeful, uh, even in places like New York, Los Angeles, that are almost iconic in terms of you know, the, the perception of homelessness just being uh, overwhelming, uh, those experiencing homelessness represent less than a fraction of 1% of the overall population. This is a totally a last mile problem. And in, in, in most communities, the, the numbers are not nearly that you know, challenging or, 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 or the problem is not as visible. But uh, the other thing that should give you both concern and optimism, as you'll see, is as a society, and this is before COVID, we're spending well beyond $12 billion a year to basically hold the problem in place. Resources that if really redirected with the intention of solving the problem would be you know, get us a substantial part of the way there. Um, what has typically been the case, we find, is that uh, while, you know, Ashley, you asked about the, the perception of the individual, what immediately comes to mind for most people is someone who seems very um, uh, ill-disturbed. And, and in fact, that is not the representative person who's experiencing homelessness. Most people go in and out of the experience, the most common way people resolve homelessness is they figure it out themselves. And so the big aha, and it's, again, really kind of powerful that to the degree communities know by name in real time who's actually experiencing homelessness, what the particular challenge that individual or household is facing, it becomes a solvable problem. It's like actually knowing the name of of your neighbor that is going through something. I feel like fundamentally though there's like i mean I, I, this idea of of nimbyism that's so like prevalent even in the most liberal of places in right like you think like it's not like uh homelessness is as i understand it like a a political problem right because it, you have homelessness in red states and blue states and uh austin texas and new york city could you i i, I guess if you're not familiar with nimbyism not in my backyard um is that something you encounter uh, in your work or at parties when you, you're explaining what you do for a living um, and what's, how is that most commonly expressed and what are some ways you redirect some of those ideas? Sure. No, a uh, veteran of many NIMBY battles. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> and yeah, the first part of uh, our organization's work even you know, prior to uh, our forming Community Solutions was all about building affordable and supportive housing. And we built thousands of units in and around the New York area. And so had to spend plenty of time with concerned community members and you know, building support for uh, those, those housing developments. We never lost a project uh, because of, of um, community resistance, but it always took time to educate folks to you know, the fact that, frankly, their fears, um, if they, they you know, were whittled down to what are you really afraid of, could easily be managed. And, uh, but the important point I want to make is while NIMBYism is a phenomenon in terms of you know, why we don't have enough affordable housing in the country, 
I want to separate out homelessness because that is a distinct condition. It's not just a public health issue because people experiencing homelessness have great health vulnerabilities. The longer you're homeless, you know, studies show it takes decades off your life. But because fundamentally it's a problem that requires you know, just deep, committed coordination and knowing people by name. And I was excited to be speaking with you at Jesuitical because there's a way we've seen that this very fundamental parts of Catholic social teaching around you know the encounter with the individual and even the Pope's call for encounter, you know, that coupled with good data, yeah, like what characterizes communities who are getting the job done is they know everyone by name and just a commitment to the common good. Like what's the overall thing we're trying to achieve here in our community as opposed to my program versus your program? That sounds a lot like you mentioned Pope Francis. He often has this phrase like, see the person in front of you. And so I'm wondering, like, how does that change the interaction between a, a program that's, you know, because all these programs have good intentions, I, I think. So, but, but if they don't, what changes the dynamic when, when you know the name and you're having that encounter. Yeah. And, and Pope Francis and Fratelli Tutti has something to say about good intentions versus the actual you know, result and accomplishment. Uh, what changes when a group of organizations and government and not-for-profits across a community agree to actually work together to toward a single aim of reducing and ending homelessness? You know, and that, that measure being it's it's not that no one will ever become homeless again, but it's increasingly rare and it's quickly resolved. It's not normal anymore. Is that um, everyone in the community has to uh, actually share their data in like a privacy protected way. But if you're working with those experiencing homelessness, it's got to be a shared enterprise. And so, as what do you mean by shared data? Like we have this many yeah. units available and an affordable. No, it means about about the individuals and families. Like it's very common that you know this program is working with this group. This program is working with another group. Uh, uh, this group doesn't receive any federal funding, so they're not you know even collecting data about who they're working with. And so, for the individual who's overwhelmed, ill, traumatized. To get what they need to get out of homelessness, they may need something from each of those agencies. They may need a, a rental voucher here. They may need housing assistance help. They need might need mental health support. They might need a link to a job. But if none of those organizations are working together, it's left to this overwhelmed person without you know a, a, a place to you know stay stably, maybe in a shelter or an encampment, to somehow thread their way through this Rube Goldberg machine of of different programs. And all of these groups are doing really earnest work, but homelessness is this classic systems breakdown problem. That it really needs to be the job of the organizations with the resources and who set the rules to work as a team to to clear the path for individuals to avoid homelessness in the first place or to get out of it quickly. So I'm hearing a lot of Catholic social teaching and what you're saying, just sort of it's like, especially this idea of subsidiarity too, like yep. having like community solutions, right? Like starting starting small, I guess. What's uh, Was there a shift for you when you realized that was the way forward instead of trying to maybe, you know, I, I feel like a lot of times this is talked about in a federal or a state or a citywide problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, my work on this issue very much follows this learning journey of thinking that it was about not enough housing and so build more housing and then realizing, hmm, got a lot of housing that's now available for people coming from homelessness, but the numbers are going up. And in fact, why are the people who I used to pass on the street 
before we opened our first building, many of them still on the street. Wasn't this all supposed to magically work out? You know, new units for the homeless and they move in. I imagine you do need new units. Is that- You do, you do, but you need two things, Zach. You need new units, but you need an organizing, uh, frankly, an, an organized operating system that accounts for each person by name and makes it easier for people to be linked to the assistance they need. Sometimes it's not a new housing unit. Sometimes it's much more simple than that. Or, you know, it's it's when we treat this as this mass, undifferentiated, anonymous problem, we also lose the, the re- resourcefulness of the person who's eager to find his or her own or her family or his family's way out of the situation. If we basically blunt, you know, the individuality here, you know, we're, um, we're fond of saying like, it would be nuts to go into a hospital emergency room and say to everyone waiting, okay, all of you are getting brain surgery or all of you are getting aspirin. <laughs> but that's sort of what we've done about homelessness. We've treated it as a single problem, whereas in fact, it's very much about the individual and working with that individual to get what they need. And it's often less than what we think they need. Is that much easier to do on a uh, the smaller, the scale? It is. I mean, communities... Um, that are smaller, uh, say, you know, I guess of the communities that have reached uh, functional zero for one or more uh, populations, they're communities of a million people. But the, you know, so it's not like, you know, a town of 10,000 can do it. But what it requires is that all of the critical organizations in that community really function as, as a team. So there is a challenge of, you know, getting things smaller, Zach, is where you see you know, much more rapid progress. But I think the answer is to, you know, in a large city, just shrink the change, make it a neighborhood issue, make it a borough issue. So when I first moved to New York, my my roommate actually worked for Common Ground um, as a caseworker, um, you know, going out into going out into the city, getting to know people who are living on the streets and trying to get them towards housing. And so like she would, you know, come home often very down, frustrated, demoralized. It did give me the perception at the time that if housing is available, they it did seem like they preferred living on the street and like she had to convince them. So what what was I missing there? Yeah, well, in New York and in a few other places, you know, there are many steps in the process that get in the way of the kind of rapid resolution that really is the key to this. We started bringing together, you know, just a few blocks from here is where our work began on this, groups of, of organizations working in the same neighborhood uh, on, on, on street outreach uh, and people who were experiencing homelessness to map out what it took for a single individual to move from being homeless on the street into an apartment in New York that was being built with you know, public resources specifically for the homeless. It took 47 steps and well over a year, if you could even complete the journey. And in the many of the people who were in that room who were interdependent because someone had to sign off on money, someone had to approve an application, someone else had to get you know, an original copy of this, that, or the other thing, someone had to accompany someone to an appointment. These are people who often had not met before. And so it was easy to see in these exercises that it was the system itself that kind of innocently had sort of, you know, 
put all these steps in place. And that's why your roommate would probably just be feeling, I'm banging my head against a wall. There is no individual experiencing homelessness in New York, I'll tell you for sure, who does not know there's a shelter system. There are a number of people who choose not to be in it for a variety of reasons. And many have already been in the shelter system and have had experiences that frighten them or uh, made them feel um, belittled. And uh, so that was always a challenge when working with folks who were living on the street. And so we learned that you needed to stop requiring that people go to shelter first, that you needed to get them right into housing. And that's um, often not a very well-organized system. I mean, I even have done like an overnight at a shelter at a church that I go to and feel like that experience was so eye-opening for me because you had to be in by, I don't know, like eight or nine o'clock. You had to be out by like five in the morning. It was single sex. So if you were, you know, any type of family, you couldn't be there. And you're just in a giant room with a bunch of people, which like I know is to some people, it's like, okay, yeah, that's better than, you know, being in the cold. But if you're trying to do all of these 47 steps and you've got these types of like restrictions on you, I'm not even sure how that happens. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So you, you've you seen how disconnected the good intentions are from a system that works. I, I One of the first encounters I had with the Issues Act was also volunteering at an overnight shelter in a church basement in Times Square. And to this day, you know, it was such an eye-opener. But um, I'll bet that you had the same experience. Like Someone has told you like what time you have to wake folks up and where to put the cots away and where the refrigerator where the breakfast is. And then you'd be sitting there for a few hours with people who were just so defeated and all they wanted was someone to say, like, how do I get out of this situation? I'm like, if only someone had uh, trained me as a volunteer, like, during those two hours be before people fall asleep, after they've just dragged themselves in from the bus and they're so overwhelmed, help them fill out a housing application. Help them help them figure out some of those crazy 47 steps while, you know, you've got, you know, committed volunteers who want to be useful. But uh, that's another lost opportunity uh, because, frankly, no one is seeing the system whole. Uh, I used to think when I started on this journey working with um, homelessness that someone was in charge. And then I learned gradually that's the problem. No one's in charge. Mm -hmm. And so what the communities we work with have realized is that we all have to have a structure for accountability if this issue is going to get solved. Otherwise people who are the most vulnerable vulnerable among us are just left spinning in the wind. You mentioned the term functional zero. Can you define that? And then also, why do you think it's realistic? Jesus says the poor will always be with us. So are we, are we trying to do something that isn't possible here? Well, Jesus didn't say the homeless will always <laughs> be with us. Uh, there will always be yeah, poverty relative to... Um, to those with greater wealth, but homelessness is a problem that really happened on our watch. Those of us who are, you know, been been alive since the 1960s. Um, so not our fault is what you're saying. Yeah, you guys are off, the, off hook. the hook. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, That's where. No, I was, yeah. yeah, but but you're you're sort of on the hook because we all got to be part of uh, <laughs> okay. part of making this right. When I started, when I moved to New York and started working on the issue, yeah, uh, there might have been about 3,000 people estimated to be homeless in New York. Now it's over, you know, almost 70,000. You know, this is. And and with more money spent, the whole industry has grown up. It would be so much more sensible and humane and more cost effective to just solve the problem. Yeah, you know, to to really unwind what has become just this system mess. 
And uh, Ashley, to your question, why should we feel optimistic? We already see communities getting to functional zero. And um, and functional zero means that uh, there's a, it's a measure of whether your housing system, this effort of you know basically shifting your efforts toward prevention, rapid detection, and rapid rehousing, can you stay ahead of homelessness so that no one is homeless for more than 30 days? And um, I will say that our work is very much uh, in, informed by uh, global public health victories. You know, like if you see the way these community teams work, uh, you'd say, hmm, uh, looks like that picture I saw of that polio eradication team in Nigeria. Or, you know, it's basically, it's all about, you know, the single aim across a community, about a blended team. It's not my program versus your program any longer. Knowing people by name and then making decisions about where to put investments and effort based on what the data is saying is happening in real time. Because homelessness, like other health problems, it's a dynamic issue. Yeah, you you need to be reacting to it and you know constantly improving your system. So, so I'm a I'm a young person listening to this podcast right now. I'm idealistic. I'm like, am I? Just, it, 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 I would love to do something like this. Do I take it upon myself to become the 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 person in charge in my community? Is there are there programs I can tap into? Am I supposed to just um, say, oh, that's really great. I'm glad someone's doing that somewhere. Uh, what's like a, a a great maybe first step or second or third step that someone listening to this could get involved with? Well, here are a few actionable steps. This is very much about uh, local accountability. So you know, if your mayor, your county executive is saying, eh, nothing to be done, let's just fund some more programs and you know, you know, that, that's our response. Be a voice in saying, no, you know, we need to actually have results in our community. And the results begin when you know everyone experiencing homelessness by names. I'd say a second thing is to look at ways uh, that your local government is set up to kind of organize its resources around uh, housing and homelessness. We need folks to be showing up at like city council meetings who just are champions of inclusion and and and, and affordable housing. The people who tend to show show up are those who you know are fearful and oppositional. Even a handful of people I've seen over and over again showing up and saying, I love this idea. We need more of this in the community. We'll give elected officials the courage to move forward. There's also, I think, um, if your community, and you can go on our website um, to see if your community is part of Built for Zero, uh, and, and if so, get involved in those local efforts. And, and frankly, I think one of the things that sounds radical, but it's totally doable in many parts of the country, is to look at your own property, if there's space for an accessory dwelling unit, if there's a way to reconfigure a home. I mean, plenty of people are doing this to create Airbnb suites. What if you did it with the intention of actually creating housing for someone who needs it? And uh, I, I think sometimes perceptions that are not at all representative of people who experiencing are experiencing homelessness get in the way of people feeling they can be intervening themselves. But uh, I, I hear all the time, and it just amazes me how individuals and families have just stepped up and kind of like taken people under their wing or helped, you know, very directly uh, to to uh, get someone off the street or into a, a stable situation. Uh, we've convinced ourselves that this is sort of magical. It's actually very normal and human to help people in that kind of direct way. You mentioned built for zero. Can you can you give us the short version of that? What that project is? 
Sure. It's um it's a, a national network now of uh, 98 communities, uh, communities defined as a county or county region. And uh, uh, Built for Zero is uh, helping each of these communities sort of embed that operating system that I mentioned, how you organize all of the key players around a, a shared aim, build a, a sort of a single team to uh, uh, eliminate homelessness across a whole population, not just have a good program. Good programs are essential, but it all has to add up to fewer people experiencing homelessness. We've done a lot of work with creating new data standards and new technology tools to help communities uh, organize information to coordinate their efforts. Uh, we train communities in data analytics because often folks who are doing the work don't have the right tools and so or the right training to master frankly, a really complex shifting problem where data is critical to really understanding patterns and also understanding what specific individuals need. It's also a very powerful peer network. Uh, we gather the communities. It's been virtual the last uh, couple of uh, times, but in uh, twice annual learning sessions. So uh, communities can really rapidly exchange what's working because the, the, while the, the, the problems are always local, the themes are very common around how to get more landlords involved, how to continue to streamline that system, how to improve case conferencing, how to create an even stronger set of, of um, collaborative relationships between like, the housing authority, the mayor's office, the not-for-profits, the, the, the VA. Roseanne, you've given us a ton to think about. Um, thank you for the work that you're doing um, in trying to solve this very solvable problem, it sounds like. Uh, we have one final question for you. Uh, it's, we ask all our guests this. Um, and if if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Could I get two votes? Maybe. Well, we will allow it. <laughs> allow it on this one. <laughs> Thank you. No, I thought, uh, what a wonderful question. Well, um, I uh, certainly need to mention my mother who- uh, I knew one of them was going to be your mother when you <laughs> okay. said, can I get two? Most people, when they want to, usually want to get a nice mother or a yeah. grandmother. What well, was your mother's name? Eileen Haggerty, and she just passed away a few months ago. But she and my father were very much exemplars of this. People can just- step up and do anything. When we were kids, these elderly, very challenged folks who lived in single room occupancy hotels in downtown Hartford, they would just get, you know, we would, they befriended them. They would, you know, all these folks, they just kind of took them under their wing. And when they had health or other challenges, they just kind of steered them. They kind of created that, that uh, example for us of, you know, just taking personal responsibility for people who are you know, struggling um, on the margins. I think if I, you know, try to visualize what a culture of encounter could look like, it's that. And uh, then also um, Pierre Toussaint. Uh, he, I don't know why he isn't a saint already, but this uh, remarkable story, if you're familiar with him, uh, a Haitian American brought to New York at, in the, the late uh, 18th century as a slave ended up being Again, this kind of example of talk about culture of encounter, this personal problem solver for uh, 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 slaves, recently freed slaves after the French Revolution. You know, his owner had, who had liberated him, he basically took care of that family back in France during a cholera epidemic. Uh, uh, was the one who would kind of cross into and care for people, and so 
uh, just a, this uh, yeah, remarkable figure of personal responsibility who lived in New York and could be on the way to sainthood. He's mm-hmm. venerable. He's, He's venerable. venerable. So, mm-hmm. so Saint Eileen and Saint Pierre, uh, Roseanne. Where can people learn more about uh, your organization and how to get involved? Sure. It's uh, the website is uh, community solutions. So uh, very easy to find and. Um, Uh, Again, so much reason to hope on this issue, and uh, there's more all of us can do. Yeah, this is great news. I hope hope you're (laughs) uplifted listening to this. This is really good. This is good stuff. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. We know what we have. Let's hold on tight. Found what we're looking for in life. Call us crazy, but things are finally right. Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have, Zach? Wanted to shout out some new Patreon supporters. Uh, thank you so much uh, to Lauren Casella, Dexter Driscoll, and Mark Lervie, who signed up in the past week. Um, some exciting things going on, on that page. We, um, we've we got two uh, Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes up there right now. And our Patreon supporters were also the first to know about this pilgrimage to Italy. So they got they got early notice last week. So again, if you want to support the show and, and get access to more content and early notice about uh, cool events that we're doing, please sign up at patreon.com slash americamedia. And as we mentioned last week, we are giving away a signed copy of Michael Lachlan's wonderful book, Hidden Mercy. And so this is your last chance to get in on that drawing. We're going to do it Friday afternoon. So if you're listening to this Friday morning, go over to patreon.com slash americamedia to get your name in the running. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. What do you have, Zach? So one of my like big uh, Catholic nerdy things is that I'm always telling myself like, okay, either Lent or Advent. It's I, one of the things I always say is that all right, this is the season I'm going to get into Herbert McCabe, um, <laughs> which I know is really nerdy, but he's like this. Uh, I would say as my uh, one of my priest friends put it to me er- earlier this week. It's he he said Herbert McCabe is my favorite Catholic Marxist, although that that list is pretty short. Um, so Herbert McCabe w- was a Dominican priest um, who was. Uh, sacramental theologian and a pretty effective preacher. Um, And so a friend of mine sent me a series of homilies he delivered during Advent 1986 on hope. And I wanted to pick up on one of the things he put in the first one about prayer. I tweeted this uh, earlier this week. Um, And it's about distractions during prayer. And I thought this advice seemed particularly Ignatian too. Um, I don't know about you, but I often have been in my life frustrated by what I've perceived as distractions during prayer, right? Like I, I go to communion and I go back to my pew and I'm thinking about like ev- like work or my commute or how what groceries I need to get at the end of the day instead of like big important things. And McCabe kind of suggests that <laughs> – 
it's sort of ridiculous to think that you're only supposed to pray about pious things. And so that like distractions are, are more often than not things that you actually want to pray about anyway, right? Like if you're supposed to bring them into conversation with God. And he has this quip that like um, people on sinking ships don't experience distraction during prayer. Um, <laughs> and so like, right, there's not necessarily an intruding thought that comes in when you're really, really desperate. Yes, I have been on, you know, airplanes with turbulence, and those are the most authentic Hail Marys I've <laughs> ever said. But no, I I'd never – to have to admit, I'd never heard of Herbert McCabe, and I used, so you sent me the, the that excerpt, and I, I, I really loved it. Uh, we had Mass for the Feast of the Immaculate Con- Conception uh, this Wednesday, and I could – all I could – find myself thinking about is everything I need to do to get ready for America's Christmas party on on Friday. And then I like caught myself doing that. And I was like, oh, good. Like I just got distracted in mass. So now I have something to talk to Zach about. And so then I just start playing that conversation in my head. And I'm like, no, pay attention to the mass. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I it's funny because um, I think about like in my relationships, the things that like occupy my mind are oftentimes like um, the things I want to talk to my friends or or my spouse about, right? Like mm-hmm. um, if, if I'm really worried about this big thing I've got to do at work, that's like what I talk to Amanda about. I don't know. It's, it's really, really natural. Yeah. Um, and so I think God also wants to have these conversations. He wants to know what's occupying our minds, right? <laughs> yeah. Honest prayer is good prayer. That's one of the things we've learned over and over again doing this podcast. And so I was really appreciative of uh, Herbert McCabe for this week. So and I appreciate you introducing me to him, even if he is a Marxist. Hey, no problem. No <laughs> problem. All right, get us out of here, Ashley. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media and is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Bye.